Well, I encourage you to turn with me once again this morning to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles available for you on the back table, or the passage for this morning is again printed in the insert that you find before you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are just in our second week of studying this book, this historical account of the early days of the Christian church. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, came to earth and for three years he taught the ways of God. He introduced a kingdom that was coming. He showed compassion for the outcast. He healed the sick and the needy. He claimed to be the Son of God. He was eventually killed for those claims. But he didn't stay dead. He rose. He rose from the grave and he appeared to hundreds, hundreds of people before returning to his Father in heaven. Well, Luke tells us that whole story. Luke tells us all of that in his volume one, in his gospel of Luke. And now in the book of Acts, we come to volume two of the history of Jesus. We just get a short time of Jesus being on earth, and then Jesus is gone, but Jesus is still working. Last week, we focused on the first half of chapter 1, and we looked at the fact that the ascension of Jesus matters, that it wasn't just an exclamation point on his life, on his ministry, on his resurrection, but it accomplishes something in us and for us. It is part of God's grand plan of redemption, and I hope that you were encouraged by that. But that is where we left the disciples last week, remember? They were gazing into the sky in disbelief, in awe. And so let's read and pick up in verse 12 this morning, reading through the end of the chapter, Acts 1, 12 through 26. Listen as I read. Then they, that is, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted a share, his share, in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Alkedema, that is, field of blood." For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let, the, 
Let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who also was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, You know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two You have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin with a question this morning for all of us to consider. Have you ever been given, and this is a rhetorical question because I know the answer is yes, but have you ever been given a bit of news or you've witnessed something in your life that has gotten you so excited that your head is literally swirling. The first event or events that came to mind when I thought of that question is all the times that Anna told me that she was pregnant. And then the joy of being able to go and see the heartbeat and hear the heartbeat. Every One of those announcements brought me to my knees in excitement, in gratitude, in anticipation. And every ultrasound made me anxious to meet the one whom I had never met. And I know all of you who are parents in this room know of that excitement. But amidst all of the excitement, there was this agonizing wait. You can't... Hold them. You can't play with them yet. You have to wait. And I know that those of you in this room who have adopted children, that's especially the case for you because it's not just nine months of waiting, but many more months in many cases. He or she is coming. Get ready. Get excited. Now, wait. I get us thinking about that this morning because I think, I suspect that that's a bit what the disciples were feeling here in our passage this morning. If, if, if we could only overhear the conversation on the walk of verse 12. Did you notice that our passage begins this morning with a walk? It was just over a half a mile walk back into the city of Jerusalem. It's mentioned in the passage that it was a Sabbath day journey. It was not because it was the Sabbath, but because that was the distance. The distance according to Jewish tradition that was allowed on the Sabbath. And so it was about three quarters of a mile or just over half of a mile. And what do you think that walk was like for the disciples? All these Words of Jesus, these images of Jesus swirling in their minds. Jesus had just told them to go back to the city and stay there. 
Because the baptism of the Spirit was coming, whatever that meant. And then Jesus floats away, literally floats away into the clouds. We could speculate all day about what the disciples talked about or what they were feeling on that short trip. But frankly, Acts 1.12 doesn't tell us anything. doesn't tell us much of anything. But if we turn back to the end of Luke, Luke 24.50, we read this. Then he led them. This is Jesus. He led them out as far as Bethany and lifting his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And then what? And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Aha, now we know what that walk was like. You see, that was not a confused and dejected half a mile walk. It was not a walk back to Jerusalem in dazed silence. No, these men, these women were bubbling over with excitement. They were emboldened about what was ready, what was to come. They were ready to go. Let's do this. And yet, they're told they have to wait. They've got to wait. Well, what can we learn from this episode, this story? Why is it here? One might think that we just go straight from the glory of Jesus being ascended into heaven on a cloud to the glory of verse 2, chapter 2, of the Holy Spirit coming in power. Why, why this filler? Why, Luke? Well, two things I want us to wrestle with as we work through this passage. Two things that I think God's Word reminds us of Two things that in the providence of the Lord have direct application to the, our life together even this very week. And the first one is this. Prayer is essential to the mission of the church. Prayer is absolutely essential to the mission of the church. I know that the early disciples were far from perfect, but their response to Jesus' words of instruction here in Acts 1, particularly in light of all that was going on in them emotionally, internally, is worthy to be emulated. It is. They are excited. There is anticipation but they've been instructed to wait. But their waiting doesn't look anything like my waiting. My waiting at times can be productivity if I whip out my phone and start checking email and doing stuff. But mostly my waiting is frustration. It's inactivity. My waiting is often filled with idleness, with distraction. Maybe it's the same for you. But you see, for these disciples... For these 11 men who had been walking by Jesus' side for years. For these devoted women who had been at His side. For His family. His mother and His brothers. Why does Luke say that His brothers are there? These are Jesus' younger brothers, Mary and Joseph's children. 
Why are they mentioned? Oh, because they were skeptics. They were unbelievers. But now even them, they are there. And for all of them, for these next ten days, as they waited for the Spirit, what was in large part an unknown thing for them. They did not know what that was going to look like. But they knew that this was the on-ramp of their mission. That these next ten days was the on-ramp for their mission. See, Jesus had told them they were going to receive power. Power to go out into the world. To cascade out into the known world. And to be witnesses of the things that they had seen. The things that they had heard. There was no time to play around. There was no time for these men to be idle. And so they prayed. They prayed constantly. They prayed with one accord. And those are the two particular phrases that I think are interesting that I want to hone in on for just a minute. They're both worth looking at and both worth meditating on. The first is this word, this Greek word that's translated in your Bible with one accord. At least that's how it's translated in the ESV, the Bible that I know many of you have. In the NIV, it's translated joined together in the New American Standard with one mind. It's a word that Luke loves to use. He uses it over ten times. All the New Testament uses it one time. But Luke uses it ten times. He loves it. Why does he love it? Because it's what the church is supposed to be. It's what we were designed to be about. All these men who were together, all these women who were together, crowded into this room, they all had been scattered after Jesus' crucifixion. Remember? Tails between their legs. They had run in every which way. But now here they are, all together. Even Jesus' skeptical brothers And they're wrapped around one life-consuming, all-consuming purpose, changed by an unforgettable Jesus. I suspect that there were some frayed nerves, that there were some tense relationships in that room. But now all that was trumped. They were all in this together, and perhaps they anticipated the opposition they would face. Perhaps they suspected what would be their fate as they with one heart witnessed to Jesus. But here the fishermen, the tax collector, the carpenters, they all were about one thing. And that one thing is what they prayed about. I suspect they prayed about a lot of things, but I think most of their praying was undoubtedly about the kingdom come, about their mission, about their witness to the world. Prayer is essential to the mission of the church. Luke gives this to us because this is a reminder of what we are to be about. We need to have that same common heart united in prayer. 
We need to have that same focus, a similar focus in praying for the power of the Spirit to come and work through us as we give witness to Jesus. Sure, we can have hearts united in prayer as we gather or as we stay in different parts of this city, as we pray in our homes. But frankly, it's because of passages like this that I love, that I encourage us to be about corporate prayer. And that's why I say it has direct application to us this week. This is one of the defining marks of our community groups. Those gatherings, in part, are to be gatherings for prayer. Not just praying for each other and our aches and pains and our wants and desires, but praying, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our mission, Jesus. Give us the power. Show us the way. Once a month, we have a gathering in this church that we might unite our hearts for mission, for prayer. And I know our calendars are full. I know that we are in a different time and place and that our roles are different than those who are gathered here in the book of Acts. But our mission is their mission. Their mission is our mission. We must have a common heart and a common life of prayer together because without it, we have nothing. The great writer E.M. Bounds has written a lot of great stuff on prayer. I just lifted one quote. He says, The life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. The life of its members is dependent on prayer, and the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer. The very place is made sacred by its ministry, by prayer's ministry. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. Well, there's another word that Luke gives to describe this prayer. It's that word translated devotion. NIV says constantly. The point of saying that is simply that this, is, this wasn't just opened our day. We are opened our day with prayer. We prayed a little. And we did other things in planning for this mission. No. This was intense, concentrated prayer. They prayed and then they prayed and then they prayed some more. Prayer is essential to the mission of the church. Brothers and sisters, we can't be too busy to pray. We can't. We can't be too busy to pray together. We can't waste precious times of waiting with anxious thoughts and distracting diversions. And so let's plan. Let's be intentional. Let's devote ourselves to pray. Recommit yourself to this. I encourage you this morning. It's essential. But there's another truth that God's Word reminds us of this morning in these verses, and it's this. Not just that God's, that prayer is essential to the mission of the church, but that God's plans will not be frustrated. 
God's plans will not be frustrated. Do you all remember Colonel John Hannibal Smith? If you're a child of the 80s, you do. Hannibal Smith was the leader of the A-team. The A-team, this band of ex-special forces men who were on the run, had been wrongly convicted of a crime, but were now vigilantes of justice. Hannibal Smith had a favorite line. Anyone remember what it was? I love it when a plan comes together. I love it when a plan comes together. Well, as we read Acts 1, at this point in the story, in this window of time, at least to much of the outside world, if we're honest, it seems like this plan has not come together. It seems like this whole plan of Jesus, whatever it was, is falling apart. Jesus has died. His followers, at least to many in the world, have been scattered. That was the end of that. They don't know about this upper room meeting. Many of them, though Jesus appeared to hundreds of people, many of them never saw Jesus, although they hear reports of him walking around. But what they did hear about was that Judas died, the one who betrayed him. The plan has not come together. I think Luke includes this story or this account to remind us to tell us a different story, to to pull the curtain back and show us what's going on behind the scenes and to teach us that God's plans will never be frustrated. You're asking, how does does Luke show this? Well, let let me tell you. First of all, God's plans will not be frustrated in that the wicked will be judged. God's plans will not be frustrated in that the wicked will be judged. It's actually a theme that we will see again in the book of Acts. We'll pick it up in chapter 6 with Ananias and Sapphira, in chapter 12 with Herod, but here we see it with Judas. We can only imagine the buzz that was going on in that time and place about Judas. In that room about Judas, I'm sure it was a mixture of deep hurt, of unbelief, of absolute righteous anger. I mean, here was a man who had walked with Jesus for three years, and we don't know what Judas' personality was like, but we do know that it wasn't like the disciples were thinking, well, I saw that coming. There was always something a little off about Judas. No, when Jesus told them that one of them would betray him, what did they do? They didn't all point fingers at Judas. They all worried that it was them. But it happened. One of their own, one from the apostolic inner circle, who was numbered among them, had gone off the deep end. And it wasn't just a bad decision. What does Peter say about it in verse 18? It was wickedness. 
It was wickedness. He went His own way, verse 25 says. He did His own thing. And then Luke gives us this parenthetical description, this PG-13 vivid detail of Judas' death. And why? Why does Luke tell us that? Why does Peter tell us all this? Well, a couple reasons, I think. One is because it's a warning. This could have been any of them. Let it be heard that God will judge those who go their own way. The Psalter is full of it. The minor prophets are full of it. God's judgment against the wicked. This is real stuff. Be warned, Peter says. Be sobered, Peter says. But that's not the only reason, I don't think. See, Peter uses this opportunity, as the early Christians often did, to tie everything that has gone on in the life of Jesus with all that had been written and held sacred for centuries in the Old Testament. And so he says that Judas' death and what they are about to do happened because the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. And he quotes Psalm 69, he quotes Psalm 109 as providing the shadow for the reality that they are now walking in. Just like Jesus told the travelers on the road to Emmaus, all the Scriptures, they speak of me. They're about me. And Peter is seizing this opportunity to show these early followers of Jesus that yeah, it's about Him. And all this has happened. Because it because he said it was going to happen. Because the Scriptures said that it would happen. Judas is still responsible for his actions. He still freely chose to walk in wickedness and rebellion. And yet God's plans have not been frustrated. Well, I know that we all need to hear this. That we all need to be reminded of this. That we all need to let this truth find deep root in our hearts. You know, we need it at the level of the world, amidst a world of chemical weapons, terrorist attacks, and, and godless cultures. We, needed to hear, we need to hear it at the corporate church level, as it seems that we are part of a society that is running faster and faster away from God. And I know that we need to be reminded of it personally with all the hurt and the pain and the things going on in our lives that we cannot control. From the most spectacular sin the world has ever seen in crucifying the Son of God to the injustice that you've experienced this year, this week, this morning, God's plans will never, they can't be frustrated. That's what God's Word reminds you this morning. And we see this point in God's dealings with Judas, but we also see it in how he's replaced. That's the last part of this story, of this section. Maybe the first question that comes to our mind is, why does he need to be replaced? Can't they just go with 11? 
Well, Peter just took the opportunity to tie the present and recent actions to the Old Testament. And by choosing a 12th member of this original witnessing team, what Peter is doing is he's preserving the Jewish symbolism that has existed for centuries among God's people. You see, this continuity was important. There were originally 12 tribes chosen in Israel. Jesus had spoken of eating in the kingdom and sitting on 12 thrones. Even the picture in Revelation 21 is of a city with 12 foundations in the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. See, this is God's purpose and His plans will never be thwarted. And so another witness is needed. And so what happens next? Well, what happens next is Jesus chooses a new leader for His church. Sure, there were qualifications that were laid out. This man had to have been with them the whole time, from John's baptism to the ascension. But what happens after those initial qualifications are met? They give it to Jesus. He's not there but they give it to Jesus as they do a thing called casting lots. And many of us are familiar with the Scripture. We know about lots. Lots was this ancient form of kind of rolling the dice and letting God land the outcome. But far from just a chance way of making decisions. This was a common, accepted practice among God's people. Proverbs 16.33 that lot is cast into the lap, but every, it's every decision is from the Lord. This was no rock, paper, scissors on behalf of the disciples. This was giving it to the Lord. But here's the thing. Lest you are interested in choosing a college based upon a roll of the dice or a spouse, this is the last occurrence of lots among God's people. This is it. See, this is a very different time. This is a very different place. This is a pre-spirit, pre-God's Word era. And so there isn't continuity there in the term, in, in regards to lots, but there is continuity in the fact that God is still choosing leaders for His church. They are men who need to have certain requirements met. Requirements laid out in His Word. In Timothy and Titus. In this very book. In the book of Acts. They're not men who are out to win a popularity contest. These are men chosen by Jesus to lead the mission of His church. And isn't it sweet that this has direct application to our lives together even this week? For we are in the process of doing the very same thing, of examining the Scripture that the Lord gives us, of humbly seeking God's wisdom for His church. God's plans will not be thwarted. He will choose leaders for His church not through lots or through a roll of the dice, but through the wisdom of the Spirit, through you, through me. 
See, in this way, we stand in direct continuity, in some ways, in direct fulfillment of this very passage. Be encouraged. God is at work. What began here in the book of Acts is happening and continues here, today, now, among us. And so let God's Word encourage you this morning to be a people of devoted, united kingdom prayer. And a people confident that God's plans will never be thwarted. Wickedness will be judged. Jesus will continue to build His church. And His glory will cover the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for such an encouraging passage from Your Word this morning. We thank You for our brothers and sisters who sat in that room and devoted themselves, gave us an example of how the, early, of how the church ought to be. Father, work that in us, I pray. Use us for Your glory, for the good of Your kingdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.